Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Esther. Well, today, uh, we're going to put a pause on our series that we've been going through this summer called Questions of Jesus, and uh, we return to that series next week. Uh, but for today, uh, for those you, who may be new to our, the life of our church, uh, we have a, a special preacher in the house today that will bring God's word to us, no other than our friend, Russ, Pastor Russ Whitfield, who's the pastor of Grace Mosaic a sister church of ours uh, in the Northeast. So certainly Russ is not a stranger to us, and so we are delighted to have him. We, we ask for God's blessing to be upon us, brother, uh, through God bringing the word through you. So come on up and open the bread of life to us. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you all this morning, Grace Meridian Hill. I bring you love and greetings from Grace Mosaic. I just Ran out of our service, and everyone was like, where are you going? And I, um, I said, I got a funner congregation to go be with. <laughs> Just kidding. No, seriously, it's such a joy to be with you. Um, and I'm really glad that uh, your pastors get to do their vacation and get some space. Y'all you know, know pastors need vacation sometimes? All right, I was just checking if y'all knew that. You know? <laughs> but today we're going to be rocking Psalm 51, and I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going, okay? Father, thank you so much. For these friends and these neighbors, it's a gift to be able to gather together, to explore uh, 
faith to think about the questions of life, to wrestle with our doubts, to gain understanding and wisdom, to get direction, Lord, that shapes our everyday lives. We ask that you would um, prove yourself again and again to be the God who steps to the valley of dry bones and speaks life, the God who can take the water of study and turn it into the wine of a preached word that ministers to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would take these five loaves and two fish and feed your people. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Celebrity apologies have become a sort of new genre on our television screens these days, haven't, haven't they? It seems like every news cycle, someone has done something and there is some new apology that's being rolled out, whether it's an individual or a corporation. And what we get most often are these half-baked apologies that are clearly scripted by public relations managers, and they generally do very little for us. They leave us, you know, unmoved and unsatisfied. These apologies come across as mere formalities, as boxes that need to be checked so that people can, you know, go on and, you know, do their damage control and then get on with their lives. And when it's corporations, we just have the sneaking suspicion that it's really about the bottom line. Whatever needs to be done in order to stop the bleed on the profits and to recover financially, that's what the statement is really for. And what we most often get is a combination of blame shifting, minimization, rationalization, and excuses that show up in a series of vague statements like this. Do these sound familiar? Mistakes were made. I deeply regret what has taken place. I'm sorry that people were offended. This happened a long time ago. This is not who I really am. This is not what our company stands for. We see a deep reluctance in these folks to really take responsibility, to own their guilt or their failure. But here's the more pressing question for us this morning. What do you do with your sins and your moral failures? What do you do when you come face to face with your wrongdoing? What is the pattern of your life in terms of what you do when you come face to face with your own moral failures? One of the most profoundly important aspects of the Psalter is that they cover a wide range of human life experiences, a wide range of emotional experiences that people have. The Psalter is one of those unique books that shows us the scope of what God speaks into, what God addresses. And there are different times in our lives where we wonder if really there's any word from the Lord. And one of those times that we often wonder is when we really mess up bad when we really screw things up. And this psalm shows us today that the Lord has spoken into this very familiar situation when we sin or when we fail morally. That God has something to say for those who have departed from his design and who have awakened to it. And the reason why I raise this phenomenon of celebrity apologies is, is, is for this reason. Here's why. Because we are in danger of becoming disciples of our culture and how we handle our sins and our failures. And without the whole counsel of God, we will follow the whole counsel of the world. 
the issue is not whether you will be a disciple. The question is, who do you follow? Everyone's a disciple, just like everyone's a worshiper. And the question is the object or the one we're following. And I want us to consider this because if we don't really hear what God has to say about these times in our lives when we fail, when we sin, then we will wind up just minimizing our sin and rationalizing and psychologizing and normalizing our sin. But here's the thing. When God initiates his saving work in a person's life, there's an altogether different way that they deal with their sins. And the word that's used to describe that in the Bible is this word called repentance. And it might sound like a dusty old church word to you on this fine Sunday morning. But with God's help, we're going to resurrect this word and its significance for the Christian community. And the reason why this is important is, is because if you look at the, what, what the scriptures teach, what you will see is that repentance is as essential for our salvation as faith. Now, repentance is not nearly as popular as faith, but it's every bit as important. To put it another way, before God brings a person to glory, he brings them to repentance. And no one makes it to glory who doesn't first come to repentance. Repentance is crucial. Because if you're unfamiliar with repentance as a way of life, the teaching of Scripture suggests that you're unfamiliar with the God who is life. So long as repentance is foreign to you, the saving love and grace and mercies of the Lord will be foreign to you. Listen, you might get burnt without earning, but you can't have salvation without repentance. You might get Jazzy Jeff without the Fresh Prince, but you won't get salvation without repentance. And so it's important that we dig into this this morning. And we're going to approach Psalm 51 through two points. We're going to see the repentant heart and the heart of repentance. So let's look at our first point, the repentant heart. Now, if you're looking at Psalm 51, and you look at the intro of Psalm 51. There's a little note at the top, an editorial note, that gives us context for this psalm. Not all the psalms give us context. Some of them are vague. They're intentionally vague because they transport into all different kinds of situations of life. Anyone can own them personally. Some of the psalms actually tell us the context of what happened. And the context of Psalm 51, it tells us, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, the context for this psalm is 2 Samuel chapter 11. And that chapter tells a story about a time in the year when kings normally went off to do their battles, to do their business, to do their wars. It tells us that David stayed home. And while David was staying home twiddling his thumbs, one day he found himself on a rooftop, which was normal in, in that society. That, you know, people they, they lived life on rooftops from time to time, and people even showered on their rooftops. But while King David was up on the rooftop, he was looking around, and all of a sudden, there was a woman bathing that caught his glance. And at that point, David could have averted his glance, and he could have moved on and gone out about his business. But that's not what David does. David begins to leer at this woman, and the lust rises up in his heart. And pretty soon, his lust uh, is translated into a grab for this woman. He uses his kingly power and he sends people to go and retrieve this woman named Bathsheba. 
who was a married woman. And what David does is he uses his power, he uses his influence to force himself on this married woman. And what is so profoundly evil about what happens in this scene is right at that moment, the king was supposed to be the leader of righteousness in the nation. He was supposed to show God's people what justice looked like. He was supposed to be the chief executor of justice. But here he does an injustice. And this woman, Bathsheba, she's married to a man named Uriah the Hittite. Now it gets even deeper. Because this man was one of David's soldiers who was fighting David's battle while David was at home. And not only was this man a good man who was fighting David's battle, but the text names him by his place of origin, Uriah the Hittite which tells us that this man was a foreigner. And this was one of, foreigners were specifically protected in Israelite society under Israel's law. And so David, after he sleeps with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, he sends her away. And he thinks that he's gotten away with it scot-free. But soon the word comes back from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. Now at this point, David again had an opportunity to turn from this path that he was following. This evil path, he had an opportunity to turn back to the Lord. But that's not what he does. He digs his hole deeper. And he begins to try and conceal the sin. And so what he eventually does is he invites, he calls Uriah back from the battlefield. And he tells Uriah to go ahead, go visit your wife. You know, because what he wants Uriah to do is go home and have sexual relations with his wife. And to think that he was the one who got her pregnant. But Uriah is such a righteous man that that night he sleeps on the steps of the palace. And when David inquires, he says, why didn't you just go home to your wife? He says, how could I go and enjoy my wife in the amenities of home when my countrymen are out fighting the Lord's battle and they aren't enjoying these kinds of privileges? Far be it from me. So David says, all right, let me come up with another plan. So David takes it another step further. And he decides to throw a party. And he has this party and he invites Uriah to come. And David just keeps shoving drinks in Uriah's hand. And he gets Uriah drunk. And then he says, all right, I got him drunk. Maybe he'll go back to his house now. But even still, Uriah remains steadfast. And he sleeps on the steps of the king's palace. And so at that point, David takes it to the ultimate extreme. And what he does is he writes a letter for the commander of the army. He signs it, seals it, he puts it in Uriah's hand. And little did Uriah know that he was delivering his own death sentence to the commander of the army. Because David gave the order for the commander to put Uriah where the fighting was the fiercest. And then to withdraw from him, to leave him all by himself so that he'd be struck down. And then he is struck down. And then David brings Bathsheba into his home. And what happens after this? David thinks that he's gotten away with it. But soon he gets this visit from Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and he tells him a little story about a wealthy man who had flocks and flocks and flocks. And then there was a poor man who had one little ewe lamb, a lamb that was like a child to him. that It used to eat with him. It used to rest in his bosom. And then the wealthy man had a visitor one day. And instead of taking one of his own flock to slaughter it, to provide a meal for the man, 
The rich man takes the one little ewe lamb of the poor man and slaughters it for his guests. And then Nathan says to David, what should be done to such a man? And David is enraged. He's like, this man should be killed. And then Nathan says, you're the man. That's you. And what transpires after this incident is Psalm 51. And by the way, Nathan, Nathaniel, it means gift of God. And it really is a gift of God anytime we are confronted with our need for repentance. But we get this resulting psalm, Psalm 51. And what we have is a picture of repentance. Beginning in verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David returns to the Lord. He turns from his sin back to the Lord. He was running. He was rebelling. But now he's returning and repenting. And that's what repentance is, fam. Repentance is turning from your sin back to the Lord. Sin is leaving the Lord and going off into the far country. But repentance is the homecoming. Repentance is when the prodigal says, I've run out of resources. I stink like the pig pen. I'm debased and humiliated. So I must go back to my father. Sin is laying upon the deathbed asleep, caught within the deceptive dream of finding life apart from God. And repentance is like waking from the deceptive dream and rising from the deathbed to the reality of the covenant Lord of life and unfailing love. C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He said this, and I quote, We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is most progressive. Listen, there are three possibilities when you sin. The first possibility is that you can bury your sin. You can try to hide it, sweep it under the carpet. Assume that in time it will be forgotten, all will be well. You can bury your sin. The second thing is you can let your sin bury you. To just continually beat yourself up and feel the shame and the weight and the guilt of it and constantly try to labor under that, that burden of trying to make it right, but you can never quite shake it. You can bury your sin. You can let your sin bury you. The third option is you can confess your sin and bring it to the Lord honestly, the Lord who can heal you and restore you. Most people confuse regret and remorse with repentance. But you can be regretful and you can be remorseful without being repentant. You can be regretful and remorseful that you were caught, but really have no pains in your heart about the fact of the sin itself. But how do we discern whether or not we have repentant hearts? Here are some diagnostics that I want you to consider. If when confronted, you always defend yourself to the bitter end, you may not be repentant. If you're more interested in looking good than actually being good, you may not be repentant. If you're generally indifferent 
to your sin and its effects, you may not be repentant. If there's nothing about the ugliness of your heart, your words, or your actions that you currently despise, you may not be repentant. If you only want to talk positivity and you never want to deal with the negativity that's within you, you may not be repentant. If you're accustomed to spinning the story and recasting the facts to reflect a better and more beautiful and more faithful version of yourself, you may not be repentant. Now, if any of this describes you, I want to invite you to look with me at the nature of true repentance. In this psalm, we see what a truly repentant heart looks like. And we're just going to walk through it. Verse 1 shows us that true repentance is grounded in the mercy of God in his covenant. Repentance is the tear of love dropping from the eye of faith when it fixes on the mercies of God in the gospel. This verse shows us that even though our character would forbid our approaching God, God's character welcomes our approach. And that's good news. Verse 2 shows us that true repentance confesses the exceeding sinfulness of sin. If you look at that verse, David multiplies the, the nouns that are used to describe sin. Transgression, iniquity, sin. The repentant are more brokenhearted over their betrayal of God than they are over the consequences that they may face. True repentance understands the relational dynamics of our actions. That sin doesn't just break God's law, it breaks God's heart. It's a relationship that is being affected here. Verse 3 shows us that true repentance expresses sorrow for sin and takes ownership of it. Do you see the personal pronouns that are used in verse 3? Verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4 shows us that true repentance acknowledges the essential anti-godness of sin. That's what he means when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And just a note here, just a note. This verse may seem to confess uh, an act that offends God, but doesn't affect any other human being. But the idea that a person could sin without injuring others is a concept that is foreign to the Old Testament. Every sin damages one's community. There are hidden sins. There are unintended sins. But there are no private sins that neither concern nor affect others. It's not possible because sin comes in various shapes and sizes. It comes in different expressions. There are sins of commission. It's actions that you do against others. But there are sins of omission. And whenever you're failing to walk in repentance, whatever you are failing to become is affecting your community. There are various ways that our sins affect the people around us, but there's no such thing as private sin, which is why accountability is such a necessary aspect of our relational life together. And in your moments of sanity, you should express gratitude for those who are willing to get into your life to tell you about the things that are messed up. 
because it takes a lot of loving courage to come to somebody and to counsel them away from a course of life that you know is bringing them destruction. But in our more sane moments, these are the kinds of relational networks that we need to build to help one another. Verse 4 shows us that true repentance agrees with the righteous judgment of God with respect to my sin. It neither finds God unfair nor harsh, but just in his judgment. Verse 5 shows us that true repentance recognizes both the fruit and the root of sin. Why does David say, I was brought forth in iniquity, in, in, in sin did my mother conceive me? What we're getting is the theological idea that we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. It's not just that. We sin because we're sinners. It proceeds from who we are in our brokenness, in our corruption. Verse 6 shows us that true repentance understands that God is after more than just external acts of contrition when we sin. He's after an honest and truthful heart, no matter how ugly the truth may be. Verse 8 shows us that true repentance is come to God with mournful hope that he will restore. It's grounded in his promises. It's grounded in his character. The repentant know that they can expect restoration, but they do so without presumption or entitlement. Like God owes you. It always comes humbly for the mercy of God. Verse 10 shows us that true repentance comes to the Lord not just for forgiveness from past sins, but for renewal that prevents future sins. That's, that's a big difference. It shifts your whole mindset about your outlook on the future and your way of being in the future. Verse 12 shows us that true repentance comes to the Lord for a spirit that is willing to be killing sin. You know the old adage of the old school theologian when he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is the idea here. The repentant don't just come to God for their disobedience. They come to God for new obedience going forward. Verse 13 shows us that true repentance is not narcissistic navel gazing. It longs to be contagious and missional. The repentant say, once I have been a student of God's mercy, once I have been a student of repentance, I will be a teacher of the same. Verse 14 shows us that true repentance is not content with generalizations. You know those times you say, oh, God, just forgive me my sins. Amen. Right? You just throw that blanket confession out there. Right? Okay. That's fine when you're first starting off. So if you're new to the Christian faith or you're new to this idea of repentance, you could start there. But this text actually forces us, it pushes us to greater specificity. And there is this wonderful and instructive statement that's in our confessional statements. Our church has a body of doctrines that we hold to. It's called the Westminster Standards, right? And in the Westminster Standards, it teaches us this about repentance. This is what it says. It says, and I'm paraphrasing just a bit, but it says, don't content yourself with a general repentance. It's your duty to endeavor to repent of particular sins, particularly. And we see that David doesn't just vaguely name sin. 
He says in verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. That was the murder of Uriah that he orchestrated. He's asking for forgiveness for that specific sin. And that is an opportunity that we have to grow. Because listen, the more you are specific with your sins and your repentance, the more specific the grace of God becomes to you. The more profound his grace becomes to you, the more beautiful the person and work of Christ become to you. And this leads us to our second point where we see the heart of repentance. Here's the thing. The bad news is that time will not heal sin. And you want evidence? Racism. People keep thinking with the next generation, they're going to be more progressive and they're going to be more socially aware. How's that going for us? Right? And you can name any number of sins. There is no sin that can be healed by time alone. Time will not heal sin. Moral improvements will not outweigh sin. It's not like, oh, let me put them in the balance. We know, well, I've done some bad things and they're weighing down, but maybe I can heap enough good on the scale and get this thing. No. No, it don't work like that. And God is merciful in not showing us how often and how ugly our sin arises in our lives. If you thought you were close to outweighing your bad deeds with your good deeds, you're not. And I'm not. We're not even close. Time will not heal sin. Moral improvements will not outweigh sin. Self-discipline will not overcome sin. You can't do this in your own strength. You know how I know? Because every January, a bunch of people start a new diet that don't last past February. I know for sure among Christians because everybody starts their Bible reading program in January. And they're like, Genesis. And they're like, mm, Genesis, uh, Exodus, uh, uh, Leviticus, thus endeth the reading of the scriptures, right? We all know, tell the truth, shame the devil. That's true. We are not strong enough to do this on our own. Time will not heal sin. Moral improvements will not outweigh sin. Self-discipline will not overcome sin. Good intentions cannot excuse sin. The bad news is that you can't make atonement for your sin. But the good news is that you don't have to. Because if you look at verse 7, David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David directs his attention to a priest who mediates, to a sacrifice that cleanses, to blood that covers. But for you and I, we have a better priest and mediator. We have a sufficient sacrifice that's been offered, and the hyssop bush has given way to the tree upon which Christ was slain for our sins and the brokenness of his people. Listen, God was rightfully angry at our rebellion, but he's never angry at our return. And we know this beyond the shadow of a doubt because of the cross and resurrection. Do you want to know how committed God is to welcoming and forgiving sinners? Look at the cross. Do you want to know how committed God is to raising up and restoring sinners? Look at the resurrection. The Son of God was revealed, so now our sin no longer needs to be concealed. And once you come to the Lord to own your guilt, 
He delights to share his grace. And you cannot really lay hold of your share in the grace of God until you own your share in the guilt. Repentance is turning from the sin that required the cross and coming home to the love that inspired the cross. There is no sin so small you need not return to the Lord, and there's no sin so great that you cannot return to the Lord. I want you, when you think of repentance, friends, I want you to think of those beautiful stories that Jesus told. Stories like the return of that, the two sons, right? The prodigal son. That image is profound. Do you think that God is like the third base coach when you screw up and he grabs his hat and throws it on the ground and he spits and <laughs> kicks the dirt? Is that how you envision God as you come back? Do you, do, you, do you think that God longs to just rub your nose in it when you come back home? No, that's not what he's like. He's the kind of father who throws a party and he wraps a robe on you. He puts a ring on your finger and shoes on your, on your feet and he throws a feast. He delights when his people come home. That's what God is like. You don't have to be afraid of coming back home to God with your sin. No matter if it's for the umpteenth time, the same thing. It's continually coming back to the Lord because his love is what actually heals our hearts. His love is what actually brings an end to our pursuits of these other fleeting pleasures, these other attempts at finding life apart from him. It's his love that does that work in our lives. The gospel lifts up the, the sufficiency of Christ and repentance leans into the sufficiency of Christ. And it says, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. My sins, they are many, but his mercies are more. The gospel is more than a match for my sins. Through the power of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, I shall be made new. God is calling to us today. Come on home. Come on home. Come home to my love. Come home to my mercy. Come home and I'll bind you up. Come home and I'll work in your heart. Come home and I'll nourish you. I'll give you the real thing that you've been after. I'm what you've been after the whole time to begin with. Here's the beautiful Beautiful news. God is more willing to pardon your sin than you are to commit it. And that's that's amazing. When we return to the Lord, we have more restored to us in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. That's incredible. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was the first thesis of the Reformation. And when we embrace repentance as a way of life, then pride will give way to humility. And indifference will give way to love. And performance spirituality will give way to wholeness. And anxiety will give way to courage. On our own, we are prone to wander. But may the gospel of grace make us prone to wonder at the love and the goodness of our God 
in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us about what it looks like to really flourish in this life. We thank you, Jesus, that when you came to this world, you made it specific that you didn't come here for those who are pretending to be well. You came for those who know that they're sick. You came for those who cannot help themselves or fix themselves or clean themselves. You came to do that work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us and that you would give us a heart of confidence that we can approach you. Remind us, Lord, that you are never angry at the return of your people when we come back home. And you will welcome us home again and again and again until that day when you make this earth permanently home, renewed in all of its beauty, sin no longer a factor in our hearts, in our relationships, or in the actual creation itself. We long for that day, Lord. But until then, we pray that you would help us to fall forward in the, in the grace of the Lord. Help us to fail forward, confident that every time we lift our head back up, we can see you smiling at us, welcoming us to come home and to advance in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So bless these friends, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name.